rational conversation has been very much devoid in the discussion. And at times it's come back. And I think what you're seeing now is we certainly have had a period where not only has it been been missing from the conversation, but to a large degree, I argue in the book that many Americans feel like they've get, like we've given up on the pursuit of truth. Welcome to Insert Human. I'm Chris Colbert. As the former managing director of the Harvard Innovation Lab, I realized many things. And one of the things I realized is that the pace of technology-driven change is faster, far faster, than most organizations and most people's ability to change. That gap equals risk, vulnerability, and eventually long-term viability. And it's a particularly troubling gap in the three sectors that underpin modern society, banking, education, and healthcare. It's the biggest existential threat they have, and by extension, we have. Closing the gap requires transformation, and transformation requires a much better understanding of ourselves, because at the end of the day, all transformation is human transformation. That's why I created Insert Human, a weekly conversation with brilliant people about better understanding us, and in doing so, shrinking the gap and increasing the chances of a better outcome for all. Before we dive into today's episode, an offer to all the listeners who are leading some sort of transformation effort. I've learned that the key to a successful transformation, organizations big or small, begins with adopting seven critical habits. And while most of the leaders I've met have nailed some, Rarely have I seen any honed to an innate, really effective level. To find out how you're doing with the seven habits, you can get my guide, The Seven Habits of Highly Transformative Leaders at chriscolbert.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Insert Human and another, I think I am, I actually have goosebumps and this is this only happens, I don't know, once every 10 shows or so. Uh, to talk to to our guest today, and that that this is a person by the name of Seth David Radwell, who I met very serendipitously about a month ago via something called LinkedIn. Seth reached out to re- me. We had a conversation, and we ended up realizing that we have a lot to talk about. Seth is the author of a recent book titled "American Schism: How the Two Enlightenments Enlightenments Hold the Secret to Healing Our Nation." He's also an internationally known business executive and thought leader in consumer marketing. And he's also, by the way, the recent creator of a newsletter titled Fight Unreason with Reason, which I subscribe to and which you should too. Prior to going full-time on his writing career, Seth served as the CEO of Proactive, a leading skincare brand. He was also the president chief revenue officer of Gunthy Renker and the president of East Scholastic, where coincidentally, I also worked at Scholastic for a period of my career. He holds a master's degree in public policy from Harvard and a BA from Columbia, both venerable uh, schools. So we're going to get right into it. And I I, I think the standard question is, why? what what, what motivated you to write this book? But I think as as an American and maybe as a member of the world, everybody understands why you wrote this book, because the schism is real. And so... Not only is it real, it's palpable and it's omnipresent in every aspect of life, at least here in these United States that are not so united. So the question is, why? 
why the schism? Like, what's really going on? Right. Well, first of all, Chris, I'm, a, I'm a ple pleased to be with you. It really is a great pleasure to be here and to talk about this. Um, the, I should say, to your point, the schism is something that we all feel, but I was determined to get a better understanding of where it comes from. And that's what led me on this journey. I mean, I should probably just mention that my whole career, as you mentioned, has been in business. And I decided to spend time researching uh, material, which ended up leading to this book, because I was convinced that our political discourse in the country has collapsed. And when I, when I looked to my peers in business, private sector leaders, whether CEOs or other executives, I noticed how most of my peers were treating politics or political issues like a third rail. They didn't want to touch them right. because for fear of bringing on the wrath of some group. And I thought to myself, well, if our political industry is broken, which I'm convinced it is, and private sector leaders don't want to discuss this, that's a pretty bad combination. <laughs> Where, like, what, where's the leadership coming from? Like, well, what? How are we going to hand democracy, democracy to our kids? So it was at that point that I kind of had a realization that I wanted to do something about this. And I had always been a big reader in uh, philosophy and the Enlightenment and history, but I was convinced that that the, the roots or the antecedents of the divisions you see today in society, in American society, have, have deep background, deep roots somewhere that goes back in time. And as it turns out, I went back to our founding, to, to the period that was the Enlightenment when the country was founded, and sussed out that there were, in fact, two very different competing visions, if you will, for what America should be. And I think that, uh, and I think the book shows this, that uh, the, our current divisions really are derivative of those earlier divisions, which are quite important. So Phil in, philosophical divisions or yes. structural divisions or. Well, so, so that's it. So, so it turns out that today, you know, we think of red and blue America and we see all these divisions, but the divisions go back to really a fundamental questions about the nature of what, what is a democratic republic. In, in the terms of enlightenment thinkers, it'd be questions that the social contract thinkers were asking way back when. And so the, what the research shows is that, you know, most Americans have uh, today uh, opinions on a whole variety of things, but my research says that 77% of Americans are part of what I call the frustrated majority or the exhausted majority, because they don't believe that, that the, the way they think about issues is best reflected in what they hear on TV or see in the media. Right. And so, and that's because of course our media models are based on whoever shouts the loudest gets the most attention. So, uh, so people are unsatisfied with the political dialogue. And we have to change it. And that's what I aim to do with American schism. Now, to your question, the schism comes back to this notion of, of there were at our founding two uh, distinct um, forces, one which, which in the book are called the moderate and the radical enlightenment. And the moderates were people like John Adams and Benjamin Franklin. I'm sorry, John Adams and uh, Alexander Hamilton. And the, the radicals were people like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine. And the basic difference, to make it simple for your listeners for a second, is that the radicals believed that the, the only legitimate form of government was bottom up, was a government of the people, a representative democracy. 
a decentralized government that was kind of the Jeffersonian republic, if you will, the idealistic republic. Whereas the, the moderates like Adams and Hamilton, who were very much elite aristocratic rulers, they were educated. They believed that, that governing needed to be done by people who could do it, the educated like themselves. And so their structure of an elite, more aristocratic government was the model mm. that we ultimately moved more towards over the course of the revolution. So interesting. By the way, I just started, NPR has a, uh, a new documentary on uh, Franklin Benjamin Franklin, which started the night before last. We watched that episode then the last two hours were last night. And one of the mind blowing things about him was he he his education, his formal education stopped at the age of 10. Yeah. So a completely self-taught kind of bottom up guy. Yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned him because of, of all the revolutionary heroes. And I've read a lot about this. He's my favorite because he was so he was a radical in the sense that he believed in a democratic form of government. In fact, Pennsylvania's first constitution was only unicameral. They didn't have a Senate, which is, a, the Senate was of course the more aristocratic body. So the fact that they only had a, a single chamber that was representative of the people is indicative of Franklin's uh, uh, you know, points of view that way. Mm -hmm. But besides being self-made, which you're right, uh, he also quickly came early in his career to, to be an abolitionist. And he also was very much for educating the average person through a whole range of materials, which he ended up by building the infrastructure for, like the post office and the printing, you know, printing stuff. And he became very active in trying to get people smarter. Right. And in, in that way, he was very much like the, in the, the French radicals, uh, Diderot, who did the encyclopedia, which was a, this incredible publication effort to try to get people more educated. Yeah. in civic affairs and other things. So he was he was amazing. So you had this collision of sorts between these two camps, the 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 elitist educated versus the uh versus the bottom up uh uh folks. Yes, absolutely. And and so besides being the difference being what form of government like was it bottom up or top down, another big difference was that the radicals fervently believed in a separation of church and state, which, you know, Jefferson famously said uh, not only should we have freedom of religion, but freedom from religion. And he, he and Franklin, of course, were very influenced by the French radicals who had documented that for centuries there was an, a, a tacit collusion between the monarchy and the church to keep people oppressed and how dangerous that was. Mm -hmm. so, so it was the radicals beside the democratic representation that really believed in not allowing in keeping the spiritual realm separate from the civic realm. Okay. So those two things were quite uh, distinct. And of course, what ended up happening, and many of your listeners may know this if, they're, if they know history, is that it led to this what became the first two political parties. So the Federalists, which was Alexander Hamilton's party, and, Je and Jeff the Jeffersonian Democratic Republicans uh, had a huge rivalry. I mean, it, it became quite bitter, such that uh, Washington... Um, in his farewell address, famously warned uh, warned the country that political parties were becoming quite dangerous in his view. Because if, if you know what he said was, if you put party over country, we have a real problem. And I think that's what's happened in the U.S. Was the Constitution's formation reflective, or was was it a, was was it, was it a negotiation between those two extremes? Exactly. And, or was structurally, it 
it foment the divide or does it? No, no. So this is quite important. What the, what the book does in the first part is trace the period of time between the Declaration of 76, 1776, and the Constitution of 1787. And what it shows is that there was a huge shift from this radical framework in the, in the, the Declaration to a much more moderate version in the Constitution. And Madison, in essence, was the arbiter. He was going between Hamilton and Jefferson, who was in Paris at the time of the Constitution, to try to tease out how this compromise was going to work. So the, the Constitution was, in fact, a, a compromise between the two models. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the reasons that the Federalist Papers, which was, of course, the, the marketing document that Hamilton and Madison wrote to get the states to ratify the Constitution, the reason why that document has become such an important document in political philosophy is because what it really does is that the Federalist Papers show how the Constitution as a solution is a combination of the radical vision of, rep of demo representative democracy, like the House of Representatives, but also has elements that are quite elitist or aristocratic to, to, to make sure that the government is competent. So the, se the senators, for example, at that time, were not even elected at all. They were appointed by the states. And the president as an executive was quite very, was sort of like a monarch, uh, even though he wasn't called a king, it, but he had a lot of power, but the powers were balanced and controlled. So Adam's model was very much based on a, a French philosopher named Montesquieu and John Locke, a British philosopher who both wrote a lot about how to balance powers. But in essence, the, the Constitution itself was this compromise between these two different models. So as life unfolded, as the decades unrolled, how did the how did the division get worse? How did it how did it evolve or devolve? Like how did, and, and ultimately, you know, the question is how. Did, and now we're in twenty twenty two. Right. I have a big question about the role of technology in all this. Right. Making yes. matters worse, but but like how did how did it unfold over this over the last? Well, so, so that's where it gets complicated, and that's why I would encourage your listeners, if they're interested, to really take a look at the book American Schism, because what the book does is it traces that 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 clash through five periods of our history. First, the Louisiana Purchase, then Reconstruction, um, then the period of, that led to the Progressive Era with the Farmers Alliance. And then uh, the 60s, uh, the civil rights movement of the 60s, et cetera. And ultimately what it shows is that there were other forces that intervened, namely this very counter enlightenment force of, of religion coming front stage, front stage again, which has happened a lot in our country. But what it shows is that it's hard to predict exactly how the forces interact. In fact, in every era, almost they, they've always been explosive. They've always had uh, times when they've came to came to, to logger to, to loggerheads, but what the history shows us is that when we've been able to compromise and have a productive debate based on facts where emotions and reason were balanced, we tended to do better. We had better. We came away with better solutions than when we let the emotions take over, which was very, like, like during the Civil War, for example. So, so what it shows yeah, is that- me, Can I just interject real quickly? Because yeah, that, sure. that, that's actually gives me a, 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 a sense of hope because I think sure. part of the exhausted majority or whatever, you know, right. 
view is we've 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 hit such a fever pitch in terms of emotionally charged, irrational, non-fact-based dialogue or discourse that we can't get back to that kind of conversation. Are you saying that we've actually been here before and we can yes. get back? Yeah, exactly. So we've been here before. There are times when we've had we, rational conversation has been very much devoid in, in, the, in the discussion. And at times it's come back. And I think what you're seeing now is we certainly have had a period where not only has it been has it been has it been missing from the conversation, but to a large degree, I argue in the book that many Americans feel like they've get, like we've given up on the pursuit of truth because everybody has their own truth. You know, everyone has their own bubble, and you know. But the, the bottom line is, facts really matter, and the constitution of knowledge that we've built over two centuries since the Enlightenment are, have really helped human prosperity enormously. Uh, and, and by the way, this is not to go on a tangent, but what, I, what I'm saying is the rational enlightenment model that gets such a bad rap today, almost everyone is trashing kind of the reason-based approach that we, whether it's because you don't believe in vaccines or because you don't believe in global warming or everyone has something to say and, and some reason why our scientific-based framework is not sufficient. Well, it turns out if you look with a little bit more uh, context, you know, 200 years ago, life expectancy on the planet was was uh, 31 years. Right now, now it's over 70. 200 years ago, one in five children didn't survive till age four. And now almost all do. The point is, is that this framework of the constitution of knowledge that we built has been quite powerful mm. for the flourishing of human prosperity. And we give it up only at our, our, our peril. And I feel like what's happening is very much the last couple of years, last 10 years or so, we're teetering towards giving up on our constitution of knowledge, our objective uh, truth, enlightenment-based approach to solving problems. And that's dangerous. Obviously. And but you've also said that in in those five periods that you cover in the book, there have been moments that are similar to where we are, where somehow, some way we found our way back to rational, logical, factual discourse. Right. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So I mean, just to, and these are these again are discussed in the book in detail. But if you look during the period after the Civil War, when Reconstruction was 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 being de developed, there was a lot of problem solving that was really uh, driving solutions to figure out how to enfranchise and uh, and build uh, skills and education in, uh, in African-Americans, former slaves in the South. But it was so resisted by the South. It was so much met with with rage and anger and humiliation from having lost the war that it was overwhelmed by emotion, which led to ultimately reconstruction collapsing. And so, so I mean, I, I chronicle that period of time. On the, on, to contrast that, if you look at the late 19th century, when, when big business was, was booming and America was becoming a financial and industrialized co uh, country, farmers were getting killed all over the country. And what, what, what started out as the Farmers Alliance and, be, and became the Populist Party was a movement that of course was emotional in terms of needs and, 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 and civil rights, and not that we wouldn't call it civil rights then, it was kind of about economic rights for farmers, 
but it was very much rational in terms of its use of economics and problem solving to help farmers uh, uh, really advocate for themselves against big banks and the railroads. But the point is it led to what became the progressive era. So by the 1920s, you, you had both Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson to some degree really reforming uh, 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 business and putting some checks on what became these, these huge monopolies, magnets of power that were ruining the lives of so many Americans. So what I'm saying is in that period, it led to some very positive change. Now, was it enough or, you know, we could debate that, but my point is we've been able to move forward and progress when we've been able to devise compromise solutions like the constitution itself. And, you know, I know we're covering a, a lot of different topics, but one area where this comes very much, uh, very real, for example, in today's dialogue is the debate on immigration, which is a huge set of problems, right? So, so uh, I'll, I'll try to articulate why I think the approach of reason and problem solving and compromise is so much more effective. In 2013, nine years ago, we had a comprehensive immigration reform bill that passed uh, the Senate, that passed the House, was going to pass the Senate, but it was shelved because for a whole bunch of reasons. But my point is this bill was a set of compromises and it was quite detailed in its approach. In other words, it had a lot of prescriptions for how to deal with the, the, the myriad issues that we have related to immigration reform. Now, it made no one happy. People on the left were very unhappy because the bill had provisions which were like quotas. They weren't called quotas, but they were limits on immigration. Yeah, limits, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Right. And people on the right were very unhappy because the bill, the immigration reform bill, had a pathway to citizenship for dreamers. It wasn't an easy path, but eventually they could become, they could have a, a citizenship. So neither side was happy. But my point is that there was so much compromise in the bill through these solutions that it would have addressed many of the problems. Right. So as, instead of do, using that compromised approach and passing the immigration reform bill in 2013, we start fighting about open, open borders and building walls. And now we're shouting at each other and we're, nine years later and we're much further away from the solution. Like, you know, all, all we do is throw the foot, political football. So why, why did it get shelved? Do you know why it got shelved? Yes. Yes, it got shelved. It, it, the, the interesting part was that it had support from what then was known as the Gang of Eight, which was both Republican and Democratic senators. Uh, and, and so there was a lot of support for it. And it really was for political reasons. It was never brought to the House. Hmm. It was it was never voted on. And then it ended up dying. So it was a little bit, again, the nature of our political structures that led it to die. I mean, one of the things that I get to in the book ultimately, and, and I think it really is really where all this heads, is that if we're going to get out of the pickle that we're in today, we need two forms of change. And the third part of the book really articulates and lays this out after all this analysis. And I would summarize it this way. One, set, one part of the, of the change or one aspect of change is structural. In other words, there are some things that are so out of whack. Our founders, when they wrote the Constitution, intended it to be amended every generation. And so, so we have some things that structurally are just broken. And I'll give you two. Um, uh, campaign finance reform, we need. I mean, the way money has affected politics today is, is untenable for the future. 
Mm-hmm. And another one I would argue for is uh, uh, changing how we vote, like ranked choice voting, because the, the, the current voting mechanism is broken. And I, I'll go more into that if we have time. Mm-hmm. But beside the structural changes, and I, I go through about five or six of them in the book, there's, there's more, maybe even more fundamental is a mindset change. We have to change how we talk to each other. And you, you mentioned fight and reason with reason is that we, we've, been ta- we've been arguing with, the, with each other in the political discourse and political debate as if we're rooting for a football game. Mm-hmm. It's, be- it's become a, a, a game that's amygdala driven, emotional, emotionally driven by primitive drives towards wanting to be part of an in-group and attacking an out-group. That, that's not the space for compromise and, 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 and right. rational thinking. Right. And, you know, part of my perspective, I think why I have a unique perspective on some of this is because coming from the business world and having built a successful business career, what we do in the business world is solve problems. You know, that's what we're, that's what we're trying to do is problem solve, right? And we don't problem solve in the political industry anymore. See, that, and I, I explained this in the book, the political industry is broken because as, instead of problem solving, elected officials, especially at the federal level, have much more interest in not solving problems and keeping anxiety going to get reelected. It helps them get re- What they really want to do is get reelected and not, they don't really care about solving problems. Now that sounds very cynical. But no, if you look, I don't, at- no, I, don't, I, don't, I don't, I don't think it's, I, I don't think it sounds cynical. It sounds true. I mean, that's certainly what I observe, and I think many others observe. I, I think the the funny thing about it, though, is theoretically, the populace, the citizenry, would want the problems to be solved because they're problems. Yes, right. And so, in other, in different eras of our history, they like, especially when when kitchen table issues were front and center. It used to be based on economics, like bringing home the bacon and taxes and things that people could count. The last set of cycles, last couple of decades, the front and center issues have been the culture war issues. And the reason that is, is because people like Lee Atwater in the 80s, and then Newt Gingrich and many others on both sides of the aisle, realized that instilling fear and anger were much better motivators for getting people to vote. And so as opposed to kind of uh, appealing to people's rational sides about why policy was better, what we end up, uh, we've gravitated towards a political system that is entirely based on pushing buttons or or pulling related to fear. Emotion. And that's that started really in the 80s. And, And, you know, not that it didn't happen ever before then, but it's always a balance. So why does that happen? Well, you know, one of the structural changes I argue for in the book is that all campaign, or if we can't find a way to better regulate campaign finance, then we should then we should prohibit political advertising altogether. It should be not allowed only only in print, no TV or radio or digital political advertising. Because it, the problem is that because of the First Amendment, political speech is the most protected, and so we're so loath to regulate any form of political advertising. Let me give you an analogy. I was uh, the head of the leading acne brand in the US and we spent, let's say $5 million a week on ads. Every single piece of media ad that we put out had to be vetted by, for, for, for approval by, both by the FDA for claims on 
the acne medication, mm-hmm. and also by the FTC for marketing claims that were that, that, we were, that they were fair. So, th- so, we, so the, what I'm saying is the private industry is regulated all the time by the government, but because of free speech, we won't touch any kind. So a campaign ad could say whatever it wants. It could be entirely not true. And that's, of course, what's happened. Right. So I, again, I have specific proposals for this in the book, but we have to be willing to make some changes. Well, I want to, you talked about two forms of change. One is structural, and that includes the campaign finance issue. The other being this mindset thing. And it strikes me that the mindset change is, is, is a necessary first step towards the structural change, that you're not going to get both sides of the aisle to come together around campaign finance reform or embracing ranked choice voting or any of the other sort of policy uh, or structural things you're proposing right? without the mindset thing. So then the next natural question is, well, what the hell motivates a change in mindset? You know, I've said in my talks and my writing, there are two, motiv- two fundamental motivators of behavior change. One is desperation. The other is aspiration. And I could go back to some of the examples you were talking about earlier on that were oriented by maybe a combination of both, but driven by economic progress or economic growth, like the farmer policy stuff. So I guess the the the, the question I'm asking is, what's the motivator to, to what's the requisite motivator to get that mindset change that you're you're saying is so critical? So it's one of the things I'm spending a lot of my time doing now. So for example, I'm working with this group called Braver Angels. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but Mm -hmm. this is a nonpartisan organization that is trying to get Americans of different political persuasions, they call them reds and blues, to come together and have a different type of discussion. That's very different from what you see, for example, on cable news. So there there are guidelines on, on how to discuss and advocate a point of view that, that requires factual basis that is devoid of ad hominem attacks. So there's a, basically a set of structures that help that help braver angels have these conversations. And they're happening, by the way. There's some marriages that would benefit from that. Yeah, right. So the, the, my, the point being is that there are many people that are in the frustrated majority recognize that the political debate is, has to, is entirely collapsed. So, and they recognize we need a different way. Now, the political debate is very much driven by the media model, which loves rage, right? And who screams? So we're, in a way, we're pushing against the very, like we're pushing a ball up a hill. But mm-hmm. the point is, and the reason why I'm optimistic is that so many Americans recognize that the, our current approach is, is not going to get us to solutions and therefore are gravitating towards groups like Braver Angels or like there's another group called No Labels, which is facilitating discussions among citizens at the community level who may be of very different political persuasions, but it's bringing them together to discuss problems. And so I'm hopeful, and I may be an optimist, that we're gonna have a renaissance or a reblooming of a different type of productive dialogue. Right. And you know, it's gonna take a lot of work though. It's not gonna happen overnight. So, so my one of my, I mean, obviously this, the book and my campaign of Fight Unreason with Reason is, trying to get people involved in talking to each other in a different way, to reject the ad hominem attacks, the us versus them approach that are, that's so popular on 
uh, in cable news or in social media, digital media. And it, it, it's, it takes a lot of practice and it takes a lot of, of, of work. So there are, there are more and more organizations, though, that are cropping up and more and more people, I think, in the private sector are, are realizing that if we want to hand democracy to our kids, we have to get involved. Well, and, yeah. and so, you know, because what's the alternative? I mean, if you if you look on the world stage, what's going on in Ukraine, we clearly have a, a contest or battle between whether a liberal form of democratic society can can work a- anymore, or whether we're moving towards some kind of a, a world where where autocracy is the a strongman model, if you will, mm-hmm. whether it's Xi in China or Putin or or uh, Orban in Hungary or, or any of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah any that that type of leader is is ultimately or the type of stru- structured society is is more pragmatic and practical in a, in a day when information is so difficult to, uh, it, it is so openly free, but therefore abused politically uh, every day. So, so, you know, these are things that we have, we're struggling with, I think on a global level, but we're, we're also struggling with in the US. I mean, it, it, for all the problems that we've had over the last couple of years, I think, and this is one thing I do credit Biden for, I think Biden is, has tried to say that we have to change how we talk to each other. We have to change yeah. our discourse. And of course, it's it's met with a lot of cynicism and also um, rejection. But that's but 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 a lot of that comes from the from the mindset from the Trump administration, which was, of course, the whole bit basis was div- divisive, was about dividing. Right, right. people. Well, one thing I want to just put a spotlight on that you just said for the audience, and it's very consistent with the conclusion I, I reached in the book that I just completed. Um, and it's this idea that the leadership construct of the, of at least the developed world, won't get us to where we're trying to get to. Meaning, our governments won't be able to get us there. Even our private sector leaders are, yeah. are, are they have other they have other agenda agenda items on, uh, you know fo- that they're focusing on, right. and that the only way we get there we're where there is a, a restoration of, of our democratic principles and, a, and a, a, a renewed ability to actually talk to each other, et cetera, et cetera. All the things that you've, you, you've talked about and written about is, is it's on us. Like we can't look to daddy, daddy president or daddy senator right. or daddy CEO or mommy CEO to solve the problem. And, right. and this is what I've been saying to my kids, you know, like I understand that they're worried and frustrated and frankly pissed off mm-hmm. at the, at the mess we've, we've, uh, we were presenting to them. And like, you gotta, as trite as it is, you gotta get involved. Like I, I, I really believe that. It's not going to happen by itself. It's, it's not, not going to happen. Right. So, and and I, I think again, so, so what are the, what are the optimistic? Well, why should we be optimistic? Well, one thing is I think more and more people who are smart who are leaders recognize that our current approach is not working and and we have to get involved which is what you said but the second thing i think is that we have models that are working better usually at the local level i mean it still is true that at local levels and communities people get together and solve problems uh you know that that's that does happen so you know i think that's that 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 has to happen more and more and in fact you know, a lot of these initiatives I mentioned rank the vo- I mentioned rank the vote. Rank choice voting is getting adopted at the local level more and more gotcha. because people realize that the election structure we have today, with the, which by the way, 
the, the establishment, the Republicans and Democrats love because they have a monopoly. But and whenever there's a third party in an election today, they're usually a spoiler. They take votes from one of the two candidates and the other one wins. So what ranked choice voting does is it'll, it essentially allows the voter to vote multiple times. You list your first candidate, and if they don't go, go get into the final round, your second, your second choice, your second preference counts. They right. get your vote. So it's, a, it's much more practical in many ways. And as an example, more localities, again, at the local level, are adopting this form of voting, which is allowing for a, a greater exchange of ideas in the election process. Um, so I think things change. Some changes are starting to happen. Uh, unfortunately, you still have this, this extremely uh, bitter polemic that's very ad hominem and, and very violent, really, is a, a way that many folks talk to each other uh, across the media that we have today. And that has to stop. And it's going to only stop if we reject it, um, which I'm right. calling on people to do. So let me I, I'm mindful of the time. You got a couple more minutes left. I, I, I I do love to wrap things up with through the lens of what can the listener do? Right. And, you know, one thing the listener can do is read your book and it's available, I assume, on Amazon, Barnes and Noble and all yes. the other, you know, American schism. It's available wherever books are sold. And, you know, I, and they, they can also get more information by going to SethDavidRadwell.com, where, you know, they can get in touch with me, which I, lo I love to hear from readers. But but one of the things that I just spoke to a group of uh, professionals in New York recently about even if you don't have tons of time or money, you can even get you can get involved in a small way. I mean, you could support some of the initiatives. There's there's a, there's a listing of around. If you do some research on the internet, there's a, a set of groups that are nonpartisan that are fighting for either the structural changes or the mindset changes. And whatever interests you, for example, one of them that I advocate in the book is term limits. And I make a case of why term limits are so important now, even though originally I was not for them. So there are groups that are fighting for term limits. If you, and, and by the way, I only work with groups that are nonpartisan. I, 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 getting involved with groups that are uh, sponsored by Democrats or Republicans, I think, is a mistake because invariably they fall back into the pattern that we're trying to get away from. So all the organizations that I, that I recommend to my listeners and to people in the campaign of fight on reason with reason are nonpartisan organizations that are trying to make change and speak to people of all political persuasions. I, I, I and I, yeah, I, I think, um, I guess just any, what I would say to the listeners, which I say to my, my kids is any involvement is, 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 is positive involvement. I also really like what you just said about nonpartisan organizations, because as much as I think of myself as a Democrat, I increasingly am, am, am alarmed at the vitriol that the Democratic Party is, is putting out there, which is not is not bridging the divide. Right. It's making the divide worse. Worse. Right. So, so yeah, I, I'm committed to only working with nonpartisan groups. So the ones I spend time with now, and if your listeners want to get in touch with me based on their interests, I can help direct them because I have a, a pretty good Rolodex, if you will. I'm spending time with braver angels, with no labels, with... Uh, Rank the vote, and a couple of other ones related to other election reforms. Uh, so, so you know, so those are the types of things that I think need to happen. And I think what's so important about what you said is that, Chris, is that people 
can can give a little bit of time or a little bit of attention. They don't have to. They can keep focusing on their private sector careers, but 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 they should take notice and do something. To your point, exactly, exactly. Get involved. And on that note, a great way to wrap it up. Seth, thank you so much for joining me today. Congratulations on the book. Congratulations on contributing a large chunk of your life and your wisdom to a, a critical a critical thank cause, you. which is well, saving our well. democracy and and bridging the divide. So we appreciate you being on Insert Human. Right back at you. Thanks for listening today. Wherever you are as a leader on your transformation journey, you'll find more helpful resources at chriscolbert.com. From more podcast episodes and my film talks from around the globe to my blog and books. And if you're a CEO or leader interested in getting my advice, you can reach me there too. Just head over to chriscolbert.com. Thanks for listening.